giving you is to tell you what you guys did right, what you may have spent too much time on or detail that wasn't important, and then to um, kind of point towards, hey, here's some, some extra details or some ambiguities you might not realize you put into your, your answer. Um, the first one that I put out, phenol, is famous for the ambiguity of somebody saying it's medicinal and, and uh, plastic and Band-Aid, and then they'll go on to say appropriate beer styles are Belgian ales and German Weizens, where, of course, you wouldn't want any of those flavors in there. You, the people fail to differentiate pleasant phenol from unpleasant phenols, and that's a very important part of that particular answer. Um, there are a lot of questions that way where you need to make distinctions about what is or isn't appropriate and be clear in how you mean it. Um, acetaldehyde might be appropriate in light amounts in standard American lager, but make it complete. Say it's inappropriate in every other style. You know, so those are the kinds of feedback points you'll get if you uh, turn in those, uh, uh, those quizzes. Spending a few minutes on those helps you realize what you can remember, what you can't remember. Um, doing a closed book is the best way to do it. There isn't any wrong answer there. You're not going to get a, a, a nasty grand back saying you should never even try this again kind of thing. What you're going to get back is, okay, here's where you're at. Here's where you can get to the next level. I'm not going to be pointing out necessarily what a 10-point answer is, but kind of pushing you towards a couple of extra half points, um, that kind of thing. Uh, because when you're up at that level, if you choke on anything in the, in the exam, the worst you do is maybe go backwards by one half point to a point on a question. So it'll, uh, it'll be very beneficial for you guys to do that. Any questions on the quiz that I sent out? Good. Yeah. Yeah. When it says hot by style, You're not going to take a, a question about your ingredients and try to design a bunch of recipes around it. What you're going to do is say, generally, they belong over here and over here and over here. So, noble hops belong in basically which styles? Pilsners, German wheat beers, that kind of thing. Um, continental hops are perfectly appropriate in what kind of style? Kolsch, um, many of the Pilsner cousins, Munichellis, that kind of thing. Noble hops would be preferable, but continental hops are the European-grown hops that are not noble. Can you name the four noble hops? Sass, Spatz, Hauntauer, Mitfruer. Spatz? Is there such a thing as a Spatz? I mean, Spalt, you got Sats. Spalt, Sats. Sats, or Sats. Yeah. Hauntauer. Don't want to be making the graders take the quiz. 
Okay, that you shouldn't be putting things in there so cryptically that the graders can't understand what you're saying because you may as well have not put an answer on it. If I can't read it, it may as well not exist. Um, so just, you know, take your time and, and spell things out. It is okay for you if you're talking about hops and things like that. Um, if you want to talk about, say, Russian Imperial Stout, you write Russian Imperial Stout out the first time, and then parentheses write RIS. And then every time you want to uh, go after it from there on in, just write RIS. You'll have shown that you know what it stands for, and then after that you can use the shorthand. Um, uh, you know, Bow Pills is uh, a good shorthand for Bohemian Pills, but still write it out at least once. Um, Oh, Bohemian Pilsner, that kind of Pils, by the way, is kind of the shorthand for German Pilsner. So if you just write Pils, 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 pretty soon they'll go, well, you could be meaning German, and in that case you may not have all your facts right. Pilsner is what's from Pilsen. Um, German Pils or G-Pils is, is fine. Uh, so there you go on that, on that little bit of feedback. So. Who can name the three primary purposes of the BJCP? One person. Dick? Without reading. <laughs> Without looking. Uh, <clears throat> okay. It's to promote appreciation of real beer. To uh, recognize uh, judging qualities. Beer literacy. Beer literacy. literacy. The appreciation of real beer and to recognize tasting and evaluation skills. Um, so, those are the three primary purposes. And you're going to get quizzed on that every time you guys come in. Any guesses on what the next little quiz might be? <coughs> Who can name the lowest rank and requirement? Apprentice, okay. And what's the requirement for apprentice? You took it, but you didn't pass. You took the test, but didn't pass. Okay. Somebody else? Next, next uh, judge rank. What's the requirement? Okay, you passed. Any uh, experience points? No. Any service requirement? No. What's that? That's really bad when the parent apprentice is doing the scoring on my styles. No, it's not. There are an awful lot of excellent apprentices out there. Out there. I venture to say I know several apprentice judges who write better than many certifiers. So, um, apprentice, there are people that have taken, I've actually told people to go in, they come in, they judge, and they're, they're basically novice judges. There are people that go in and essentially write their name at question one and get a a 15 on the exam, because that's the courtesy minimum, basically, for the exam, um, just so that it preserves their points. And they'll then go back and study and, and regroup. There are people that are apprentices because they failed the written portion, but they may have gotten an 80 on the uh, tasting, so their perceptions are very good, that kind of thing. So that does happen. Um, there was a group of five exams that I got uh, where 
the study group was, had apparently met for like six months, and it was obvious that it, they weren't really studying beer so much as they were drinking it, uh, because everybody did okay on the tasting portion past that, and all five examinees failed the written portion, with I think the high score being a 55. And there were a couple of 30s in there. So um, it is possible for apprentices to be well-versed in tasting and writing score sheets and things, but still not be able to pass the written portion. So it's not, not as bad as you may think. Um, so we have apprentice and recognized. What's the next rank up? Certified. And what's the requirements? Five experience points. Yep. Fifty percent of all experience points have to come from judging. Just straight out. Is there a service requirement? No. Correct. What's the next rank up? National. National. What's the requirement? Okay. Twenty. Twenty what? Uh, experience points. Okay. How many from judging? Ten. Exactly. Is there a service requirement? No. Uh, what's the next level up? And what's the testing requirement? And what's the experience requirement? Forty. Uh, which? No service. No service requirement. What's the next rank up? And what's the requirement? And it has a service requirement. And then additional levels of grandmaster. Yeah, it's 100 points for each additional grandmaster uh, level, and uh, each one requires a service requirement. Has a service requirement. For those that are interested, it's not going to be on the exam, but for those that are interested, the service requirement is primarily grading exams. Uh, it takes 240 service requirement points, and each one of those is worth one tenth of a, of a non-judging point. Um, the you primarily get it by getting by doing exams. If you're an assistant grader, you get one uh, service point per exam. If you're a lead grader, you get two. Um, then you get an additional. You can get two additional uh, service points per month if you're on one of the BJCP committees. You get those awarded once the committee has adjourned. Basically, a few ongoing programs like. The one I'm in, the, the uh, continuing education program, you get the two per month. You get an additional two per month if you're a director, um, and then president gets another two per month. So somebody like Gordon Strong, who is now our Grandmaster Fifth Level, which is becoming to me Grandmaster Superfluous, um, is has done a ton of work for the BJCP at 240 point increments per level for service requirements. He just does a ton. Um, he also does a lot of judging. So he's got, obviously, more than 500 points. It's huge. Um, okay. Whenever you're, uh, you're marking in the, the point values for the Grandmaster Plus, should it be like 100 Point increments past Each, 100, yeah. and then in your or your judging, should it be? Yeah, it'll be a that? graph. The next the next class, I'll actually pass out that page one, and you guys will all do it. Put your names on it. Um,
but it'll be a graph, and there'll be exactly enough spaces to do apprentice recognized certified national master, grandmaster, grandmaster plus, um, or multiple levels. And you just write 100 plus on each, you know, for, for the level, or 100 each level for that. Okay. And circle service requirement. Very <coughs> straightforward. Anything to put in the box for judging points? Just put half of. You can write 50%, but just what it'll be is it'll be a graph that'll say it'll have rank. It'll be rank. It'll be point of experience. Judging. And then service. And it'll be a yes, no. And you just circle no all the way down, then circle yes when you get to the bottom. Um, oh, I'm sorry, rank and then it'll be score. Pretty straightforward. So you don't actually have to fill in. It's experience and then judging points. Um, and so it's pretty straightforward that way. Okay. Any other questions on the, on the program at this point? Yes. So I take exam, pass it with 70. Correct. In my points, I become certified. If I want to go any higher after retake the exam, I get a higher score? Correct. Yeah, you can you continue to accumulate points as long as you keep judging. But to achieve more, higher rank, you have to get the higher score. So if you ended up with an 80% on it somehow the first time you took it, it's just accumulating points. Yeah, and you would just move your way through the rank as you, as you continue the points. And your points carry over? What do you mean? So if you accumulate you know, 30 points as a novice and you retake the exam score higher, do you As a novice, you're not, uh, that's not an official rank. So okay. it means you haven't taken the exam, but it's a, it exists in there. And your points are retroactive for two years. Okay. You can ask for more than that, and they might be there. And if they've got nothing else to do, they may even try to contact the organizer and see if you were there. Um, or they may just, you know, if there's a couple of them, just take your word for it and say, you know, here you go. Um, but yes, if you're an apprentice, your points continue on and on and on and on. Um, you know, I've got a, I've got a very good apprentice in, in uh, Sacramento who has not had time to retest since she took it, what, eight years ago. Um, she has over 40 experience points at this point. And the few times that I've quizzed her, the rest of it, she's ready to become a national easily. She's gained that much experience, but she still has to put apprentice because she hasn't retested. Um, to remain an active judge, by the way, you have to judge once every two years. That keeps you on the active list. And we're not very good about putting people on the inactive list. You've got to be inactive for a considerable period of time. Uh, okay. Barney!
Barley is uh, the main grain that goes into beer. But it isn't malt until it has been malted. Any grain can be malted. Malting is simply the process by which the grain is allowed to sprout because it's a seed and it wants to turn into another piece of grass. Um, it's allowed to sprout and then that sprouting stops at a predetermined point and then the malt can be processed from there. Are there any other pens back there? I don't know how easy it is to see the green one up here.
because as this process goes on, heat is created. And so this Acris fire begins to grow. When it has grown to basically about 25% of the length, this rootlet has begun to be obvious. That is the absolute minimum amount of malting that is allowable by German law. That's highly under-modified malt. Nobody actually makes that malt anymore, but it was the easiest way to make malt in the early days of the, of the Reinheitsgebot when it had to have some kind of malt, and it was generally known as chip malt. And now we call this rootlet when it is, um, when it is uh, knocked off later on the chip, C-H-I-T. No, no chicken your beer. And it's chitty, yeah, chitty malt. Um, generally under modified malt these days is 50% to 75% uh, modified. What happens is, is that this is a very steely grain. If you go to taste it, it'll, it'll break your teeth. Um, or try to. What happens is, is that this steely endosperm becomes starchy. What we're doing is taking advantage of the enzymes that are already present in the grain and making the grass seed break this stuff down into food for the acrosphere. And in doing so, we create something that is usable for a maltster. Um, yes? So basically when they're malting, they're germinating? Yes. Okay. I was exactly wondering when I was little, I read it, it like germination. Yep. Okay. It's exactly what it is. It's germinating. Okay. And if they planted it, it would become a field of barley. So this all gets broken down, and the modification starts at the bottom and kind of works its way through. And in most other modified malts, there's a little steely tip to it. It's kind of off-center, um, about 75% of the way up. Wireman's under-modified malt is at the 75%, right? I call it an under-modified pilsner. I'm not even sure if it's still available in the U.S. But Breeze makes an under-modified malt, and it's 50% malted and has a pretty tough, steely area. Under-modified malt has enzymes available, plenty of enzymes available for for an, uh, an acid rest and a protein rest, especially the lower degrees of protein rest. As this becomes more and more modified, there's fewer and fewer of the protein rest enzymes available in the malt, which is why highly modified malt or over-modified malt generally doesn't get or need that much of a protein rest in order for you to get it at, uh, get through the beta-glucans to get it to starch. Um, I'm not going to tell you that they don't need a protein rest, but I'm going to tell you that well-modified malt is made to work without the protein rest. Okay? There's still those enzymes in there, but they're not as abundant. They're primarily in this little steely section right up here. Fully modified malt is anywhere from about 80 to 100% acris fire growth. Generally anything beyond 75% is acceptable, 80 to 100% is where they tend to look at it, and it's a range. This is an agricultural product, it is not a machine, so different pieces of grain are going to modify it different 
areas, and they do not pay a bunch of people to sit there and sort modified from unmodified and you know, pick them out. Generally, it's the whole batch. It's at a particular point of workability. And um, it goes on to the next step, which is drying. So everybody clear on what the acrospire is? That's the little shootlet that's growing underneath the husk. You can see it in your mash. Anybody who's an all-grain brewer, that's kind of arrow-pointed thing that looks like the tip of a piece of grass that floats to the top of your mash and never seems to act, you know, they all seem pretty uniform in size, they never really kind of get crushed. That's the acrospire. Okay? So, acrospire growth determines modification. At the point that they are modified as far as the maltster wants it to go, they go into the drying drum. They're generally tossed around, and just that agitation knocks off the rootlets. And those rootlets are generally able, they're lighter than the grain, by air, they can be blown out, sometimes by screens, they're, they're knocked out, that kind of thing. And the husk should be intact. Okay? So a good maltster has given you a, it's gone from a steely looking grain to a nice, big, fat, plump piece of grain that looks like it's ready to be used. And from here, the grains can become all sorts of different things. It's all ready to be base grain. We now need to dry it, make it bone dry. Drying does a couple of things. It preserves enzymes. What are the two broad categories of enzymes that it's, pre that it's preserving? Alpha and beta amylase, which are known as diastatic. And the other broad category? Proteolytic. These are protein enzymes. Water. And even a little bit of water in there 
will cause them to start working, but they don't have a lot to work on, so they essentially just kind of die off in there. And when your malt has gone slack, you don't get much conversion, and you don't get much uh, utilization out of your grain, okay? much extract out of it. And the extract you do get is usually poor quality. The number one place where home brewers will get slack malt is if they don't own a mill, and they're ordering, or they're bringing home grain that's already been milled, maybe by the bag pull to save some money, and it sits around for a week or two before they use it. It's definitely going to go slack by about two to three months out. So it is always preferable to buy whole grain and mill it yourself. In terms of getting the very best out of the malt, the best flavor, the best color, the best extraction, uh, the best attenuation, and the best profile that you want for your beer. Always a good investment to get a, a mill. So now that it's dried and we have preserved these enzymes, we can do several things with it. It's now base malt. Base malts come in a variety of flavors. I'm just going to start passing these things out. Take a smell of them. Um, let's start this one and go the other direction with it. Take a smell of them, take a taste of them. Some of these malts are slack, you'll notice them, because um, these samples I've gotten up to seven years ago. Um, they're pretty easy to get a hold of, but they still do the job in terms of showing you guys different kinds of malts that you might not be able to get or might not have ever experienced. So from base malts, we can then go into toasted malts. These are still in the base malt family. They include Munich, Vienna, Victory, and variations of that side. Generally they are under um, they're generally under 30 lovabond, 40 to 30 to 40 lovabond, and they still have some diastatic potential. They still contain enzymes. That's why you can make a hundred percent Munich malt beer or hundred percent Vienna malt beer. Because it has enough enzyme activity even after toasting to convert at least itself. It may not have enough energy to convert other grains. Wheat falls in this family because wheat, you can make 100% wheat malt beer. It has just enough energy to convert itself, but not so much energy that it can convert much of anything else, which is why the very best wheat beers contain at least some base malt. One thing I didn't start off with here is the grain basic categories are two row and six row. Um, going backwards first, just half a second. There is a four row malt, but it's generally not suitable for brewing. It's not produced for brewing. Um, it ends up in either animal feed typically or sometimes in certain flowers. Um, two row is by far the most uh, sought-after style of grain or type of grain. 
Basically, as you are looking top down on the shoot of grass, you will have these little flowers, and you'll have two little pieces of grain, and then you'll have these little buds that never develop as you look, look down on them. Two pieces of grain that kind of spiral up the uh, piece of barley. In six row, all of them develop, and they become the barley seed. Um, the advantage of six row over two row for a grower is higher, higher yield per acre. But in terms of diastatic potential and proteolytic potential, six row is superior to two row. Because it's economical, an awful lot of specialty malts, which is the next category we're going to go into, um, which include crystals and black malts and things like that, where the starch or the enzyme activity is no longer important, an awful lot of them get made out of six-row barley because it's economical. And we want cheap ingredients. So they get six times the amount of barley out of the same field. Um, or three times the amount of barley, sorry. So three times the amount of barley. <laughs> so the next group that we have. Okay. Yes. What's your opinion on the, the quality of, say, a specialty ball made from two row versus six row? Um, depends on what you want to do, and I find that they're absolutely comparable. It becomes a matter of personal preference. Um, I would bet you that nobody can tell you whether or not you use two row or six row crystal malts. More importantly, might be using English or European. Um, crystal malts or specialty malts. The one the, I'm sending these around now is, um, and what I sent around before, are some various types. The Mussdorfer is a German-made malt. Uh, the Pauls that I put out is, a, or sorry, the Crisp brother is um, English, and the Cargill is. Domestic. It's Canadian, what we call that domestic. Um, okay. So we have base malt, we have the toasted malts, which are related, we have the crystals, what happens with the crystal malts is, is that they're not dry. They generally go into a whole other chamber, and steam is injected. The steam is at a prescribed rate. It's generally around 155 to 200 degrees. And what it does is creates a quick conversion. They're essentially mashed in the husk. And then, once that mash is over, they're slowly dried to get rid of excess steam. And once they begin to dry out a little bit, the temperature is raised until caramelization, the melanoidins, begin to get developed in the sugars. At a very, very slow rate, those sugars will dry perfectly clear. And we call that carapils, is the most popular name for it. It's a clear dextrin malt. 
And that's the sugar that's created in this process, by the way, from the high, high um, temperatures is dextrins. The um, Carapils has other names. Carapils is a trademark name of Greece. So now you have Carahel, uh, Carafoam, uh, and a number of other names that basically mean exactly the same thing. Here's some extra dark crystal. And are you guys getting any, anybody tasting any of these? You getting yes. any taste difference between, say, the English malt and the domestic or the German? Big taste difference. Yeah. yeah. Huge. Um, the Maris Otter is a particular varietal. Uh, Golden Promise is kind of the up-and-coming replacement for Maris Otter, but generally um, these are specific varietals that have specific flavor components. Pilsner malt, I think, has an extremely um, distinctive flavor, and the, the varietal that generally goes into Pilsner's is of a family called Hannah, and there's a bunch of sub-varietals from there. Moravian barley, or Moravian Pilsner, is preferable for most Pilsners, especially for, say, U.S. domestic Pilsners, but you're not going to get any because basically it's all grown for Coors. Um, so we generally get the Hannah, we generally just call it Pilsner malt. I think they all have distinctly different flavors in the finished beer, distinctly different levels of toastiness, um, distinctly different kinds of toastiness, kind of the equa equated to how darkly you toast your own bread, and maybe the kind of bread behind it, white bread, wheat bread, that kind of thing. Um, I definitely think Maris Otter has more of a toasted wheat bread kind of a flavor to it. It's really deeper and richer. Um, Here's a couple of Pilsner malts coming around. And Munich and Amber malt. These guys, Munich malt is um, sort of a secret weapon of some very successful brewers of adding maltiness to virtually every beer. It adds a toasty character to virtually every beer. And I've seen them use it even in, in very, very pale beer styles. Um, Taste it and taste the amber malt in there too. The amber malt is the English variation, essentially, of I think Munich malt or Vienna malt. It has a distinctly toasty character. So victory malt, Munich malt, amber malt, almost all the same. If you ever get into a recipe and they want amber malt and you don't have any, you can substitute a little Munich malt. You can substitute a victory malt, something like that. And you're going to be in the same range of flavor profiles. Huh. Okay. So, crystal malts. Once we, if we roast them at progressively higher temperatures, the crystal gets darker, and the crystal gains a certain amount of richness and flavor, and then finally it goes over the top and it starts to take on roasty characters. In the very, very dark crystals, uh, English crystals, and especially in the, in the domestic versions, 120 Lovabond or 150 Lovabond crystal has, to me, a distinctly burnt sugar to roasty kind of a flavor to it. Um, it loses all of its sweetness and starts moving into just to almost pure color characteristics. I really end up backing off on those. Um, 
Okay. So, that's our next one. Finally, we get over into the roasted. And the, the, the uh, study guide lays this out in a slightly different fashion. The essential thing that you're going to try to do with explaining what malts are is try to separate them out by process. Okay? And when you're trying to separate them out by process, base malts have a particular process and they can be slightly toasted, but the main thing is they all have diastatic potential. They can then be made into crystal malts and there's no diastatic potential. In fact, all the rest of these we're going to talk about are um, have zero diastatic potential. So roasted malts can be brown malts, chocolate, and black patent. Diastatic potential is the amount of enzyme activity potential that any grain may have. Enough to convert at least itself from starches into sugars, and hopefully enough to convert any other grains that may be added in there. Okay. Can everybody read this? This is kind of... The roasted, brown malts, chocolate malts, black malts, variations of that um, can be carafa. Carafa malt is essentially malted prior to, right after being base malted, it's then spun again in such a way that it, it uh, gets the husk removed. And then carafa is then roasted to the same levels, carafa one being analogous to chocolate malt, carafa 2 being analogous to roast malt or roast barley, and carafa 3 being analogous to black patent. So of these three, I mean, just kind of maybe tip my hand a little bit. Anybody notice a particular dark grain that's missing? Roasted barley. Roasted barley. It's not malted, so it's not a part of the answer to this question. It is a good footnote, and that's, here's one really good uh, point to the exam. When you say that you want a barley, you are indicating unmalted. You have to say malt in order to indicate a malted grain. Okay? That becomes particularly important on the recipe question. Okay? Um, if you happen to mention that stout uses a lot of roasted malt, you might get a note back saying they use barley and it's unmalted. So we'll get a little ding on that. But carafa is a malted grain. Black patent is a malted grain. And it's called patent because it was the first process where a drum roasting was done so that it didn't all turn to charcoal, just shy of that. And uh, 
It was a patented process where they kept injecting steam into the uh, into the drum in order to keep the uh, barley from or the uh, yeah the malt from bursting into flame. Uh, we separate these guys, all of these guys out, color. Um, how do we indicate color? Exactly. So the green is level bond. Crystal malt, so generally, what's the upper range of color for any malt? Right around 500 to 550, and that's for black pot patent. But many black patents are made around 400 and on up. Chocolate malt tends to be in the um, 200 to 300. And right in the middle there, between 300 and 450, is roast malt or roast barley. Catch me on that. Rose barley. Carafa follows these color scales. The Carafa 1, Carafa 2, Carafa 3 tend to be in those color ranges. Um, some chocolate ones are down around 150, the, uh, especially the uh, German ones. They tend to be very light in color and therefore have a lot lighter acidity. Roasted malts develop an awful lot of the, the melanoidins develop in their help to create acidity in a mash, lowers pH, uh, buffers calcium carbonate or calcium carbonate buffers the acidity. So high carbonate waters tend to benefit from using roasted malt where high sulfate waters tend to benefit from a lot of toasted malts where they don't need the acidity to bring the mash down. So when we get into water and again when we get into recipes and get into geography, water quality kind of relates to the popular grains and the popular styles of an area. One quick note, malt can be made from any grain. Any grain that's allowed to sprout and then that process is stopped is considered malted. Okay. So, of the bolts that I sent around, which ones were the easiest to chew? For anybody that actually did chew any. The less roasted hmm? ones, yeah. The, the base bolts, especially I think the Marisotter, is probably the easiest to chew. That chewiness, that ability to crumble, is called friability. Fry 
friability is a desirable trait in base models. We want it to be able to crush easily. Carapils, wheat, have a fairly low friability factor. They're very difficult to, um, to crush by comparison to more modified malts. The more modified a malt is, the more friability is achieved. So under-modified malts are not very friable. Well-modified malts are extremely friable. The English tend to make well-modified to over-modified malts. And over-modified, by the way, the acrospire is allowed to grow slightly past the tip of the grain. Um, they got to be careful about that because at some point, that acrospire begins to use up the available starches as energy to continue growing. So you start to lose extract potential with highly over-modified malts. Almost every malt that's available today is fully modified. It's at least three-quarters, should typically more so, with the only exception being the Brees under-modified malt. Um, What's the general percentage you would expect of base malt to specialty malts in, in most of your styles? 80, 20, 80 plus. Yeah. super important to the overall quality of the finished beer. This is why extract growers can steep some grains, a small portion of grains, and still come up with something that's the same color and to a certain extent the same richness as a, uh, a all-grain brewer. However, because specialty malts don't generally have any diastatic potential, to get the most out of them, you can gain more out of them by putting them in at least a partial mash, if not a full mash. When the enzymes are available from the base malt, they will go after all of the starches, and even black malt has a little bit of starch in it. And that starch gets converted down um, in such a way that it won't create haze in the finished beer. It will uh, help to keep the mouthfeel where you want it. It will uh, aid in color, it will aid in the final acidity of the beer, um, all of those things will matter. And again, we'll go over a lot of that stuff when we get into um, recipe and process. So, from there, this 20% can sometimes be replaced with Adjuncts. This is not technically a cloud of a part of the malt family because many adjuncts are unmalted. So what would qualify as an adjunct? Corn, Corn and rice. Yep, the number one and two. 
Price. What else qualifies as an adjunct? Sugars. Sugars. What else? Oats. And unmalted wheat. Wheat is the only, malted wheat is the only non-barley grain that we don't consider an adjunct. But oats would be, even flaked oats, which are unmalted, or malted oats, uh, which are wonderful if you've never used them in, a, in an oatmeal stout, completely different than flaked oats. Uh, they are, uh, these are all adjuncts. Other adjuncts that are up and coming, millet and sorghum. These two are interesting because they don't have any they don't have any uh, gluten. And gluten-free beers are on the horizon. All the big boys are playing with them. None of them taste much better than Zima, but uh, <laughs> but they're on the horizon. They're working on it. What about uh, just seasonings? Since they're something other than malt, would they classify as an adjunct? Uh, strictly speaking, yes. However, you don't gain any fermentables out of them. And to me, that's a key distinction. I mean, you name a whole bunch of spices and stuff, you're starting to just name anything that isn't barley. Right. You know, and then you can talk like a house cat, you can talk kids, you know, anything that's contributing to your beer. So, you know, it's, you got to draw the line somewhere. So if it's not contributing something fermentable, it's probably not something that you want to include as an adjunct. It's more of a spice, it's an additive, something else later on. So it can be classified as an adjunct. Technically, yeah, it's whole fruit. Yeah, because it's fermentable. Well, that just being the sugar category, Yeah, generally. Um, sugars. All of these, though, would generally get added in the mash, with the exception of sugars. Where would we add sugars? In the catalog. And where else? In the fermenter. And where else? Bottling. So real quickly, during Heiskabach, says you can only use malt, water, yeast, and hops. That's the German, the Bavarian purity law. Bottling sugar does it count against the um, the Reinheitsgebot? Yes. Technically it does. In order for somebody like um, Samuel Adams to be considered a Reinheitsgebot friendly beer in Germany, they actually capture the CO2 as it's fermenting, store it, and add it back into the beer as the carbonation. Uh, and that's not an uncommon practice among brewers. They do all kinds of interesting stuff. Yes, sir. Do you keep with that as a crowd's being used? Is that more 
Carson would be more, yeah, now we'll get into that in the process, but that's the adding of, of young, mostly unfermented wort to, uh, it's usually an active wort, but adding that in to create carbonation. Yeah, talk about that process. Um, but on the other hand, just as a side note, how about Irish moss? Is that in or out with the right lights come up? I got a split decision here. How come? Those of you that say that it's in, why is it in? It doesn't end up in the beer. That's the primary distinction. It doesn't end up in the finished beer. It doesn't. It, none, none of it dissolves. It's not actually part of the uh, the beer itself. So, so if you were doing a German Pilsner recipe and you wanted to say it was part of the Rheinheitsgebot, you can actually note in a recipe that. Uh, Irish moss is used for clarity, but it doesn't end up in the finished beer, and therefore doesn't violate Brian Eichsgebach. And you'll send probably half the graders to their books looking that up. But you'd be right. Uh, let's see. Did I pass out the barley varieties? No. Got that stack up a little bit. Do we have any uh, spare handouts in the back there? Okay. So just some stuff to look over there. Um, there's a handout that went out there about Pills malt and DMS. Malts that tend to be kiln at a low temperature have enough SMM, SMS, um, the precursor for DMS. Uh, it's finally bugged you that much, huh? It has. I can't stand looking. <laughs> I know, I'm like, oh my god, if my board ever got this disgusting. It's called water. It actually works. Okay. So, I like the So, S-methyl metronine or symethyl metronine is the precursor that exists in base barley. The more highly kilned the malt is, the less of that is there. It gets blown off in the whole kilning process. So, very light colored malts will tend to have more DMS or more DMS potential. The DMS is created during the boil. It's created as long as the malt is hot above 140 degrees, or the, the wort is hot above 140 degrees. So it's being created in the mash tun, and then it's again being created in the boil. We get rid of it with a rolling, vigorous, open boil that blows off all of that DMS. And if our boil is 90 minutes or less, we have a rapid chill of basic, my preference is 20 minutes or less on five gallons. 30 minutes or less is, is fine, and many major brewers take up to an hour or so to actually fully chill their beer, be with whirlpool time, etc. Um, but basically what that does is reduce off all the DMS. The boil itself is where the DMS goes, and generally after about 90 minutes or so, it's all gone. After 90 minutes, there is no more SMM to create DMS, or not enough that it is a real big flavor problem. 
At that point, other warts, spoilage, bacteria, and things like that can get in. So a quick chill is still important, but you're not generally going to have DMS from beer that's been boiled for a, lot, for a long time. But you may end up developing color in the process. Bach beer, for instance, um, does very well with an extended two-hour long boil because you want the richness, the melanoidins, that come from, some, from a long boil. But they generally have no DMS, whereas a Pilsner, you want to get it on and off that heat pretty much as quickly as possible to preserve the light color. They're known for having a little bit of DMS. Okay? Um, let's see if there's any other questions that I've missed here before we move on to beer. Any questions so far? Um, interesting is, is that it has been in a huge transition since homebrewing and microbrewing started. So over the last 30 years, barley varieties have changed significantly. Um, the quality of the barleys, I think, is superior to anything that's ever existed, uh, at least in America, for since Prohibition. Um, the quality, the skill the maltsters are doing, the consistency that's coming out of the maltsters is at an all-time high. We're really kind of in a very cool place. You start reading a lot of books that were written 10, 15 years ago, and you'll find some disparaging remarks about domestic malts or uh, various things going on with imported malts. A lot of that stuff is outdated. A lot of that stuff is very, very outdated. It is possible as a club, as, a, as an organization, to order samples from Cargill uh, or Brewer Supply Group, those kind of things, and get a range as to what's available. And then you can go to your, your local brew shop and say, I want to try some of this. And they'll order it for you, and you're on your way. But you'll be surprised at how many really, really great malts there are out there. It's amazing. The, the range, 20 years ago, there were maybe 30 malts available in the U.S., and now I think there's well over 100. Brewer Supply will sell sack quantities to anybody. Bless their heart. Uh, okay. I'm going to pass out this little line. Yeah. Question? The freight cost on the single sack, though, makes it sort of prohibitive. Yeah. Um, I'm going to pass out this little thing on the exam um, about the for exam format. And um, while I'm getting set up here for beer, I want to send around a couple of cups here. It is not uncommon that you end up at a some location where, pass those back, pick a whiff of these, pass them on back where the cups are not suitable for judging. They may look good, they may have been cheap, that kind of thing. You can't really go and complain to the organizer that you can't use the cups. But it is okay for you to say, oh, okay, that's there, that's a part of the cup, so therefore it's not a fault with the beer. I don't really smell anything in that one. Don't? No. Don't get plastic out of that? 
something that you will find in the aroma oh. at all. It's a mouthfeel. Yeah. You will find it in the finish. It's that puckering sensation that's happening at the very end. Sometimes you'll find it really offensively right in the middle of it. Generally it is caused by over sparging. Sparging with water that's too high of a pH, meaning it's above what pH level? 5.8 typically. Um, anything above about 7.0 is um, is considered way too high for sparging. But um, 6.5 is generally the high end limit. It's caused by boiling grains. Uh, when you recirculate, you want to recirculate to make sure that you're not getting any big chunks going in there. Um, it's okay if you've got grain bits in there, but it's pieces of husk that you want to keep out. Because that's primarily where the tannins are. Um, tannins are a polyphenol. Um, they are technically a part of the phenol family, but they're not one that we they're one that we separate out strictly as astringents. Oftentimes, a harsh bitterness can be mistaken for a Usually, what happens is the stringent gets mistaken for other things. People will uh, equate it to sourness. People will equate it to uh, hot bitterness. They'll equate it to a, uh, a chlorophenol, even. Other various other phenols, a spiciness, that kind of thing. Um, I'm trying to remember the name, the German term for. Um, for huskiness, Brunhe, Brun, Brun, yeah, Brunhe, I think. But okay. so it's a pretty easy one. It's a process cure. There are some bacterial infections that can cause an astringence, but generally they're not a big issue. This next one coming around is wild yeast. This one might. This is a great tannin going in there. That cardboardy flavor is is an aside from it. I'm really more concerned about the uh, the mouthfeel aspect of it. That puckering sensation. <laughs> this is wild yeast. And the stringent never has a, that never has an appropriate um, There is some astringence found in lambics. 
um, and certain sour beers, but generally it's not at any sort of an overt level. You guys getting that horse blankety, sweaty, horse sweat kind of a flavor to that? Oh yeah, it just it is it is a rather light example of it, but they had to blend one bottle of, of beer with a, a Budweiser to get enough volume here. So some of these I, I can really pick out pretty easily, but some of them I have trouble with. Is there? I've heard like you know threshold differences. Certain people taste certain This is definitely above the flavor threshold. You're looking for that kind of coarse blankety. Um, Straw kind of a thing in there, dry straw. Probably a description thing. like that would be that I would be familiar with what a wet horse blanket smells. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, critical. I'm just saying, there's mm -hmm. your, your process. You know, that's not. Well, that may have been very common back, you know, in a yeah. more rural agricultural. But this has got a, a definite kind of a sweatiness to it. Um, animal barnyard kind of a. Um, Everybody's familiar, been at least to a barnyard as, as a petting zoo or something like that. Got a little barnyard to it. Yeah, there's a side sourness to this, but that's a lot of it having to do with how thin it is. This is a uh, fat tire clone that I threw some Britannomyces in, but uh, this is a, uh, a uh, definitely, I mean, I intentionally put Britannomyces plus any in this. Well, we would generally consider this an off flavor. It's not smooth. It's not uh, not fruity. It's not not any sort of yeast characteristic that we would typically find um, in most beer styles desirable. Getting that? Yeah, yeah but don't you not desirable some of the Some of the well, again, goes to lambic which pretty much is the exception to every rule. Um, it, it does go to some of the uh, intentionally infected Belgian specialties, such as uh, like Orval and others that have the Protanomyces already in it and that intentionally are, have it inoculated. I shouldn't be saying infected. I'm just saying, like, Jared Oliver's book, and that was like one of the most interesting things to me, the way he describes it, he's like, who would drink this stuff? I mean, it's a, well, it's a pleasant flavor because it's only one of them, but it really does single out the kind of characteristics you're going to find from one that has wild yeast in it. It's a, um, it's a definite dry, dusty, I equate it sometimes to chaff that are, you know, cut uh, dry hay, that kind of aroma and chewing on a piece of hay kind of thing. Um, there you go. Yeah, wet wool. Okay, that could work. That's what a horse point is made out
we'll start with American Cream Ale. It's a legitimate style. Unfortunately, I can't get any of the classic examples in um, in California because Genesee oh, you and Little me. Kings. I still have some in the fridge. From when? Like '74? Well, no, my, my uncle um, lives in Rock, uh, from Rochester. From Christmas? Ah. See, I, I, I shouldn't have assumed nobody could do And you know what? But Don't ever tell somebody that, oh, it's a classic style, never tasted it, because then you have to drink the whole thing. No, then you just open one bottle and you pour it for everybody and say, no, 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 do. No, then you don't no, have no, he gave us the whole can. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the whole case? Um, he gave us a whole six pack to do that. So Rainier is the closest I can come to. It is an adjuncted um, ale. I even look for Henry Weinhardt's because it's kind of in that same category too. It's, it's an interesting case. It's not to my liking, but that's me. Cream ales are Pilsner Cousins. They're designed after, everybody have one? What was the name of this? Everybody got one? And I just don't put it in the can. Enjoy. Actually, I have plans for that. On the way home. On the way home. No, I've used it to put in the radiator. Yeah. I need cream corn. So, what are you getting out of the aroma? Cream corn. Cream corn, corn in there, DMS, but also a, a definite corn note. This is relatively cold, which is the way most people prefer them, so you've got a sweetness up front. There is a smoothness of mouthfeel to this. Very, very light, delicate finish to it. Mostly what you're getting out of this is graininess. Right? Not that I'm trying to tell you what to taste, but mostly what this style is about is graininess, creaminess, lightness, but still has a relatively uh, obvious ale, malt, or ale yeast characteristic. Ale yeast and lager yeast have definite differences in their characteristics, with lager yeast tending to be a lot smoother. Even, even a lager yeast that is brewed at ale temperature, so dirty lager, is going to tend to be smoother than the smoothest of ales. And fine smooth. In this case, it's a dryness. Um, definitely moves right into um, the... Uh, the graininess, there's an ever so slight apricot fruitiness to it, which would be typically absent in a lager. You guys getting that? Is there any acetyl all the here? Not that I detected, but. Okay. I can see where you might want to find that in there because the fruitiness, yeah. along with that, that real dryness, gives sort of a green apple tart. Mm -hmm. 
um, that's in there, but I don't think there's any city law behind yeah, it proper. The only, the only real difference between this and the Genesee is Genesee's a bit near and yeah, Rainier is a pretty good example of it. It's not a classic example, but it's a pretty good taste example. And for some things, we're quite lucky, eh? Mm hmm. That might be one of them. Oh, I remember when Genesee was in every liquor store. Well, my, my uncle's uh, father worked for them, so anytime his mom comes up, she brings cases. I was playing with this beer yesterday. This is Lagunitas is serious. They call it a high-gravity cream ale. So I called them and asked, so is there actually anything about it that, other than the fact that it's just so roundy? No, it's just low-hopped. It doesn't actually have any adjuncts in it. But they want to call it a cream ale. It's 1072 starting gravity. So to get it down to where it ought to be, I'm cutting it with a little bit of the Rainier. Make sure I did that right. Yesterday... Playing with this, I actually, to a 12-ounce to a can, added 8 ounces of water to get it to the right gravity. <laughs> yeah, that's not bad. That's okay. This is a, a very Americanized version of it. Again, it's not a classic example, but it's something you might get in a uh, competition. What would you score this as? 
but it's not strictly speaking to style, correct? It's but as microbreweries are making cream ale, they're sort of redefining the style. Well, it does have a low hop bitterness. Understand that what you're getting, it's hoppy in the standpoint of a lot of flavor and a lot of aroma, but it is not hoppy from a standpoint of bittering. Remember last week we were talking about tier 1, tier 2, and tier 3 kind of descriptors. Hoppy is a tier 1 descriptor. It can mean bitterness, flavor, and aroma. Depending on where you put it in there. But you want to be more specific. Low hop, this has moderately aggressive hop flavor. Or aggressive hop flavor. Certainly has aggressive hop aroma for stocks. Um, and certainly citrus, and I get tangerine out of this rather than grapefruit. So they're not using, uh, say, a cascade, they're using something else. But hop bitterness is just barely a, at the threshold of perception. It's very low. They intentionally made this a sweet beer, and to balance the overly sweetness of a high-gravity beer, they went towards a lot of hop flavor and aroma to create balance. To me, it's still very cloying. Very, very, very syrupy and cloyed, but it's not warty. It doesn't taste like raw wort. Okay. On to the next. We're going to have to start putting out some more cups here. My favorite little bottle. Next one that we have coming out here is going to be a German pole. This is Reistorf. It is a classic example. Hybrids are very difficult to get examples of. They're generally pretty delicate. If you look at the gravities, what's the, what's the general gravity range of hybrids? Going to be about 10, 50 and below, right? They're relatively delicate beers.
First, what are you getting out of this for aroma? You're getting citrus out of that? I think you're looking for citrus if you're getting citrus out of it. Um, be very, very aware of that as a judge, that sometimes you will start looking for what you expect and generally find it. Uh, approach each beer new. Um, I do get I get pear out of this. I get apricot. Like a what? Red apple. This is an exceptionally fresh. I, I'm super impressed. I uh, had this a couple of weeks ago here, and it's the same case that I got. But the peachy, uh, how good. Um, reminds me of uh, a review Beth, I gave Beth Zangari a hard time for in, uh, in yeah. Zymergy, one of her early on reviews. It says, it reminds me of apples. Pink lady apples, not red delicious. The kind you find next to the side of the road. It's springtime. I'm going where? Down the lane next to the tree with, the, with Dutch elm disease? What? Come on. <laughs> Near a cow? Is there, you know, is there a secret handshake involved? What? Yeah. She might live in Apple Country. She does. She lives up in Placerville near Apple Okay. Oh, well, yes. You know, no, then, then that, yeah. But she is. She's very, she's very descriptive. She's a dear friend of mine. She's a, she's very descriptive. That probably explains the whole. Yeah. Oh, she stays. She, her and her husband stay at my place when they're in Sacramento. I stay at my third place. We stay up there at their place. There's a very dry finish. You could say that there's a touch of astringency to that, but I think that that's mostly due to the carbonation. Um, carbonic acid will create a drying effect. It is a pain response, and your your mouth may give you the impression that there's. The question was, is there any astringency? I just think because this is so effervescent and so light that that's kind of an impression there. There is a significant um, hot profile to this compared to the cream ale. You guys getting the hot bitterness out of this? But a very, very low to non-existent hot flavor. Any flavor that's there is probably a carryover from bitter. Even when you add a bitter hop, you're still going to get some flavor out of it. This has a flavor more predominant. Yeah, this definitely has a big yeast signature in the aroma. Yeah. You're getting a, that fruitiness is all yeast. That's yeast. It's all yeast. Are you also getting any of the Pilsner malt out of this? That light little gritty toastiness in there? With this beer having traveled this far, I'm sure oxidation is inevitable, but by comparison to many examples of rice turf that I've had, this is this is not oxidized. This is just about as fresh as you're going to get it. The only place where I've had it the same as I've had it in Colm has been at Magnolia, where they make a, a uh, Kolsch that's just drop-dead gorgeous. The nice thing is, is even though this is an ale, especially compared to the cream ales that we had before, the Americanized version, 
the AL signature is a lot smoother, and that's owing to a longer maturation time and a cooler storage. Yes? Why would it be outside of the lines? Seems to be a lot more there to it than uh, this. Well, as it so happens, that's the next beer. So let's make a comparison. So don't drink your whole example there. Oops, too late. You're telling me all day, Okay, descriptor of that. The um, 
Yeah. Somebody said rough around the edges. Why would you think it's rough around the edges? What, what would what feedback would you give them to That's get rid of that? Sulfury, yeah. Cold sheets can be quite sulfury. Somebody said that it seemed like a lager. Um, I think that's the Pilsner malt, not the yeast. Um, I think that this has a higher finishing gravity than the rice store. Um, and definitely is a product of American hops versus the continental that are in the rice store. I don't because I used the Pilsner. It makes like a Belgian but not with ale yeast. And I don't get that same no, odor or flavor. I mean, I dislike lager. I need a little, so I'm very sensitive to any lager flavor. But I cut no less lager flavor. And that comes kind of out So you just increase the water and cut back on the hops. I like lager. Yep. No, but it's really still got that yeast. How about longer cold conditioning? Yeah, yeah. Switch out the uh, the Americanized hops for more continental, or perhaps you know just suggest if you aren't already using continental hops, use continental hops or use noble hops. This would smooth out with younger age. Do you think it would smooth out in the bottle? No. Because no, it's, it's filtered. Yeah. If it doesn't have the yeast, it won't change. But I brought this specifically to kind of show you what many American breweries are doing with Kolsch. This really kind of strikes me more as a cream ale than it does as a Kolsch. I would tend to tell the person that, eh, you're making a more American version, which puts it in the cream ale category. Oh, wow, the this one's got a lot more multi Yeah. Yeah, the rice scarf is much more classic, much smoother, much richer. Give me more of that that's not really warm now. Oh, the rice scarf? Yeah. Well, I do. Oh, don't open it. But I don't really want to open it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There is more in yeah, this box. Yeah, this, this is like one. one. Anybody else want a little more of the rice stuff? A little bit left? Nobody? All right, smile. Take it. He's like, yeah. We already heard you have a case. Yeah. No, I don't have a case. They had a case here. I just grabbed four bottles for us today. Uh, so how do these strike you so far? As hybrids, are you getting a characteristic of what a hybrid is about compared to what we did with American Nails last week? Even American Pale Ale? Uh, definitely, even, even the Kolsch is smoother than any of the American Pale Ales we had last week. Partly owing to the lower hop, but partly owing to at least a certain amount of cold conditioning. Could they have done it better? Absolutely. Notice that the, uh, the uh, curveball is also darker in color than the uh, rice star. Not as clear. Not as clear. That, yeah, that may have been... Okay. 
So the next one that we have up is American Blonde Ale. Um, American Blonde Ale is a style that is all over the map. It's a style that can go from very malty and sweet. And the style guidelines basically point you in that direction, that they should be maltier and sweeter. But an awful lot of them are coming out with more Pilsner-like um, bittering characteristics, so a more aggressive bittering. But it's still, generally, the best examples are relatively low in hop flavor and no real hop aroma. Um, This one puts itself off as a pale, as a uh, a blonde. They're actually calling themselves a pale ale, but it, they put themselves off as a blonde, and you can tell right away that the color is a little bit darker, and yet you don't get any caramel notes. Beer. That has a bush product. 
I mean, it's not bad, but it's not um, anything to write home about. It runs right along in there with the same recipe I think they used for what Elk Mountain Pale Ale and Beachcomber Pale Ale and these others. They continually rename, and it keeps coming out of Fairfield. All of these specialty beers that they make typically are made in Fairfield. That's their pilot brewery. <laughs> it's one of their smallest breweries, and so it's one that gets to make all these, what for them, are very creative beers. Okay. They do have people who know their brewing Yes, they do. do it. All right, here we go, Blondale. Again, Blondales are hard to find, uh, at least good examples of Blondales. This is uh, Grand Teton's Pale Golden, Old Faithful. Anybody need water? Thank 
confusing anybody with some of these little experimental things that we're doing where I'm throwing at you some ones that are slightly outside of the style. But when there aren't really a lot of classic examples, it's easier to show you guys what style isn't. So I'm not confusing anybody, I hope, right? At least not that you live there. Anybody want any more of this particular this old faithful? What are your opinions on that one? How, does it fit the guidelines? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Blondale's nothing to write home about, I don't think. Although, I think there are ways of making very, very good examples of it. And I think a lot of it has to do with how you deal with hop flavor. A lot of brewers don't really deal with hop flavor very well. This is my own opinion. Um, a lot of them just kind of, they either get a little overly aggressive and pull out too much um, unisomerized bitterness out of it, or they try too many different kinds of hops, and it just becomes kind of a mush of flavor. Um, when it comes to Blondales, when it comes to Kolsch, I generally feel that the number of malts you use should equal the number of hops that you use. So if you're, I mean, it's like two malts, two hops, tops, done. Simple, 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 simple. If it's a simple beer, it should be a super simple recipe. My, my particular version of a Blondale is 100% Pilsner malt and one hop glacier. It's my particular recipe. But, you know, there, I just don't think that they're a place where playing with a lot of different kinds of hops, trying different things, not so much that it will make it too complex, but it just pushes it out of balance. And I think the Grand Tetons does an okay job of keeping it somewhat in balance. This one is from a brewery right up the road. Good. 
He just doesn't have a great bottling line um, because it's pretty much all by hand. And um, so his bottling, his bottle product tends to suffer. You guys getting them? This has a pretty good sized English um, ester for uh, an English yeast ester. I bet if I go down there, he's using his English yeast. I mean, it's a little, little on the higher end of the alcohol. Uh -huh. So you've got to actually go down there to. Frog legs. I don't know if I can eat frog legs. I always feel bad. I know, but then I feel bad. Why? Because you think some frog is going around on a wheelchair? <laughs> no, I really like frogs. <laughs> I really like frogs because they taste really good. Okay, so the specs on this is 14.5 degrees Plato. As we remember, what's the multiplier for our original gravity? Four. Right. So what's that translate out? Oh, six zero. Oh, sorry. Uh, what? Four five six. Uh -huh. uh, yep. And this is 28 IBUs, six and three quarters percent alcohol. It's way up there in the alcohol. This is. This is, to me, a classic blonde ale, or what blonde ales tend to be anytime I ever see anything called blonde ale, an alcohol delivery device. <laughs> yeah, but vodka doesn't have this color or effervescence. Um, so it's, and you don't consume it by the pint usually. So, but uh, Belgian blonde ale tends to be in the same category for me. It's it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere, and it's Belgium's version of an alcohol delivery device. You know, so blonde ales tend to be, and that, I think that's one of the reasons why they many of these hybrids, Kolsch being, I think, one of the clear exceptions. Many of these hybrids are, are brewed to be palatable on the sweet side and typically typically alcoholic. Excuse me. The premiums tend to be up there. They tend to be about five, five and a half percent, which is a lot of alcohol for something that light. Um, you know, this is six and three quarters percent, almost seven. Um, really light the flavor, really light the bitterness, really light all the way around. It's a to me, this is what blonde ale is pretty much all about. You know, I don't mean that as a as a lack of compliment. It's not a style that I would choose typically to drink. But nicely, this is a, a pretty clean example. I had some of these beers that where the bottling has been suspect. Okay, amber hybrids. How many amber hybrids are there in the uh, style guideline? Three. Two of them are extraordinarily difficult to find. You can't find Dusseldorf alt beers very often. One of the things about, and we, we talked about 
amber ales being that kind of in-between, one of the things that some amber ales are migrating towards in American brewing is towards altier styles. They're starting to use noble hops or at least continental hops in, um, and making them a little more aggressive. Um, and they're starting to be a little bit toastier in flavor. And they're starting to mimic many of the, the signatures of the uh, altier style. The only one that does it in any sort of classic fashion is Alaskan Amber. And it's a pretty good example of a northern German alt. It's in the style guidelines as a classic example. Unfortunately, I don't have any Düsseldorf alts to show you. But Düsseldorf alts, I would tend to think that if I blended this particular beer with a little bit of downtown brown, uh, I would get the sweetness and some of the color of the Düsseldorf alt. But I probably wouldn't get the clarity of hop.
dry, toasty. Ever so slightly fruity, but generally uh, very clean. Lots of um, lots of richness to that malt. And that's a very. This is a beer that's in very good shape. So.
Killian's is not a classic example. I know. Beamish is, and um, Murphy's. Murphy's is the one that's a lot. And Murphy's, by comparison to this one, is a redder color, but this is still quite red, and chestnut brown. Murphy's tends to have more roast note to it, and is sweeter, a lot sweeter. And you say most, would you say most of them are this light? Yeah, they tend to be fairly, relatively light in this color, red, red to brick red. Get a similarity in aroma to Guinness. <coughs> Did that at all? Yeah, but I mean, like, what would that similarity be? Um, probably the yeast signature. Okay. What do you think happens to it in? Transport. Oxidation and four months in custody. Yeah, Sitting in a hot container. Uh, Just slowly dying. It doesn't translate well. No, bottled product doesn't tend to translate well because the parts per million of oxygen is about five times what it would be on cask. And like any any product, any any alcohol product, they travel better and age more slowly in bigger bottles. So, honestly, wherever possible, I've picked the biggest bottles I can find among any of these styles, if anybody's paid attention to that. Um, at least the ones that travel. If I could find that in 22s, that's what would be sitting here. I'm just curious, because like you said I've had it on tap. And had it there. On tap, it tends to be sweeter. This is really dried out. This is a little bit of an oxidized example. Um, one of the things about English beers or Irish beers and oxidation is that as judges, we actually get used to that flavor and we start to look for it. Really, we look for it as a characteristic English flavor. And the Dark Lord has put out beers that are absolutely fresh into competition. They score in the mid-20s and he would believe that they're stunning examples. And then a year or two later, a year or two later, they're scoring in the high 30s up to 40 because they've oxidized. <laughs> and it's just, you know, and that's how he ends up. You know, he he is he's killed the uh, nationals in uh, the, the local area in the English ale category this last year with two-year-old examples. And brewed an English beer in two years, three years. That's just because they sit on the palace. Yeah, yeah. And I think that the brownness to it, this, this is usually a very nice amber red. The brown highlights to it, I think, are strictly due to oxidation. But still, this is uh, a pretty good example. It's showing you some roast, it's showing you some malt. That little tangy um, metallic note to, our, to it is part of the oxidation issue. This should be a little bit richer than it is. So I urge you, if you find it on tap, try it on tap. Make me think I should have gotten the Murphy's. Okay, the other amber hybrid that I have 
Right here locally. Uh, last night at 
uh, down in downtown San Francisco, Grant and Green, and it was hor- it was the it, never have I turned uh, an anchor steam down because usually you know it's so close to the source that it's fine, but it it came up like a, almost in what I thought was acetaldehyde, but I didn't think like is that possible with sure. with this or is it maybe the maybe the lines? Yeah, draft, didn't you? yeah. Draft line was, was uh, dirty. Okay. So I'd, yeah, that was the first time I've ever turned down a beer. I um, I I brew professionally occasionally. I brew for different places in in around Sacramento. There's a loophole in the law in one of the counties near where I live, where if they put a brewery in on premise, they can serve hard alcohol. So there's an awful lot of places they're supposed to make 200 barrels a year. There's an awful lot of them making like 20 barrels a year just to get the uh, the license. And so there's a few places I go and brew, and I just started at a place that has a nice little five-barrel brew system from from being a brewery previous, and uh, just put a mild on tap, and I cleaned the lines, but when I pulled them off, the inside of the faucet looked like the inside of a six-year-old's nose. (laughs) (laughs) It was just, you know, scrub that thing clean. When I went in, you know, there's a lot of things that can happen. When I went in and pulled the tap off of one of the beers, I thought for sure I was smelling um, vinegar. I mean, it was just, it was balsamic vinegar. What's the name of the brewery? Well, now it's clean, you can tell us. Now it's all clean, yeah. It's called Town Lounge. It used to be River Rock up um, in, in Roseville. And I just put a mild on tap. Which you guys will have when we do brown. No, don't worry. We were somewhere. I told the guy it tasted like line cleaner. He's like, no, that's what it's supposed to taste like. I'm like, no, that's line cleaner. I because before we had the pressure system, I sucked in enough line cleaner to help. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So one of the little things I'm getting out of this particular one is a little tang out of it and a little kind of a woodiness. The woodiness is uh, oxidation. Again, we've got a slightly oxidized example. And anchor steam, for as popular as it is, can sit on a shelf for an enormously long time before it gets purchased. They don't have a sales force to do it. No, they've got a they've yeah. They've got a guy whose family is in washing machines. <laughs> yeah, he's got that's true, they do have the still. And they're making whiskey, and they yeah. now they're making cheese. Maytag, oh yeah, Maytag Blue. That's the big. That's the big cheese in a lot of different blue uh, cheese these days in a lot of restaurants. It's the Maytag Blue. He's also got horses. He's he's discovered horses, and he's gone back into winemaking, and he likes to race sailboats. Apparently, he owns two fifty footers on San Francisco Bay. Wouldn't it be nice to have that much money to just? Play with. <laughs> <laughs> like, your, like your clothes cleaned, you could you could start with washing machines. <laughs> he did. He did. He's a yeah. I know he was. I'm like he didn't think any. But if you've ever met him, has anybody here ever met him? Yeah. He'll just talk your ear off about beer. The guy would just just go ape shit on you about beer or about cheese or about wine or whatever he's passionate about because he, and he's. He's a marvelous storyteller, yeah. and and very cool. Yeah, just, just dinner with him at uh, Border Shell. 
Yeah, just don't get critical about his business, and he'll tell you anything you want to know. It's great. Uh, it's in Napa Valley. Okay. Yeah, he's got a cattle ranch up there and a sheep ranch. And... Well, I'm not sure what the um, connection is, but I'm trying to remember who it is. The people that do most of the meat for Trader Joe's, um, cattle company, and they're in Petaluma. Sorry, the name escapes me. But he's tied in with them, and it's an organic Even meat company. Right? Nyman, yeah. yeah. Nyman. He's tied into with Nyman somehow. And he's another very cool guy. Yeah, 
plenty. Um, I'm getting uh, definitely getting that smokiness out of it. Um, the peat malt thing is something that one writer wrote one time as being a way to over to compensate for a yeast that won't produce it, and it has suddenly been reproduced like man, like a virus on the internet, to uh, to being something that's supposed to be a part of the style. Peat smoke is sooty, greasy, ugly stuff in beer. If you're going to put a smoked malt in a beer, make it a clean smoke, make it a maple, make it a cherry, some kind of fruit wood smoke, something like that, it would be an off flavor in this beer. Anything other than that kind of flinty, deep depth of smokiness, great. But peated malt is just, yeah, you know, smell, it tastes like burning old grass, burning mulch. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but the nice thing about it is, is that even as light as it is, um, and it's got a, it's got a final gravity of somewhere around about ten ten, and um, so that's why I'm placing it in the seventy shilling category, and that's just me speaking. As a classic example, this is supposed to be an eighty, but. I honestly think this is what I would expect from a 70. Um, I think that this is a, a really, this is in top-notch condition. This is very tasty. But it's still quite rich. The, the, um, the maltiness is very rich. Oftentimes, a flaw among judges is they start looking for barley wine type of characteristics when it comes to richness. They're looking for a huge viscosity or something. And it isn't going to happen in these beers. These beers are, especially 60 shilling beers, are amazingly quaffable on a hot day. There's just not a lot of hop there. Well, but there's a lot of character. What is the price of hops? Well, yeah, the, um, historically, the British taxed everything that went outside of Britain to all of their colonies. And then the local land barons would, would tax it again. And hops being an important part of, bre of brewing were taxed so highly that they were they were essentially doing the Anheuser Busch routine with the hops on this thing. Just they were, you know, they were putting them in there and then fishing them out for the next batch because they needed to they were just so expensive to use. Well you can't really you can't really grow hops. Right. It's too too far north and too wet. We, yeah, that we discovered last week. But the um, the the overall impression is is that they ended up being able to make multi beers with just enough hop to be preservative, but created enough alcohol in most of them to let that be the most the bigger preservative effect. Do you think the baseball is? In this particular one, just uh, probably a characterless uh, English two row. But if I were to make it a comp, I'd use Maris Otter. Gold cross. What's that? Gold cross. Yeah, which is actually a one grain I have yet to use. Um, I've got friends who use it and swear by it. It's just not one that I purchase. So. I get grains from Cargill and they don't carry that. I have to go to the reverse supply again. No, I, I definitely like them. 
So contrast that if you haven't drank it all already. Oh. <laughs> and please do note that as we go through these, I do try to move these from widest to, to biggest. One of the things as a judge you might want to do is compare how one beer moves from one stop to another. It helps to develop your flavor memory. It's really important when it comes to being able to contrast. As a judge, ultimately, you won't always have the guidelines in front of you. People will bring you a beer and say, here, try this. Tell me what you think. Well, I wanted it to be, you know, the one thing that a brewer does, the first thing that they hand you a beer, the hand you the beer, and the first thing that they do is apologize. It didn't quite turn out this way. It could have been better. It could have been, you know, there's a couple of great brewers in this room that do exactly that. <laughs> I've had their beers, I love their beers, and they'll apologize every time they hand it to me. Just don't do that. Wouldn't do that at a bar. But if um, if you compare them, it becomes easy to say to contrast things and say, well, it's got slightly too much hop profile in flavor. It's more like this. You kind of cross the styles here or there. And being a homebrewer, there are no lines. You do not have to follow style guidelines. Styles are a target for competition. The beers you make for competition are analogous to race cars. They're, they're made for a particular track. They're made to do a particular thing, and they don't do anything else particularly. They don't do anything else particularly well. It's, Per se. <coughs> so are we about to be two glasses with this? This is Bellhaven's Wee Heavy. This is a strong Scottish ale slash Wee Heavy. This is six and a half percent alcohol. Representing about a 1070, 1075 starting gravity. Put a mouse. starting gravity. Um, this is about a 10-15 finishing gravity. The lowest sweetness in the nose? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. There's a definite sweetness this to it. This kind of has a sherry-like yeah. 
it's not overt in, in the sherry. There's a light little bit to it, but that's probably because of the, the export part process. You wouldn't necessarily find it in the classic example. In fact, if anything, you would find the malt even more upfront. Um, the toastiness is a little subdued compared to getting it super fresh, but the toffee is definitely there. How's the hot profile on this beer? No aroma, no flavor, no perceptible bitterness. And flinty, yeah, definitely flinty. Why would you think that both of these beers are relatively flinty? Because the water source. High mineral content. A relatively hard mineral source. Because this is what the water tastes like. Well, if you didn't, if you didn't hop it, it would. Well, Scotch would never use crystal malt. It gains all of its color from aging in oak barrels. Burnt on Yes, it does. I think there's plenty of Scotsmen that would hit you over that. <laughs> Fine toasted English oak. Black oak, in fact, is the, is the preferred. Though they can't come across it very often, they've sawed most of those forests down. So, compared to the first one, is this still relatively malty rich? Is it still. Are you getting the alcohol out of it and the aroma? I think that. I think the, the malt sweetness covers most of that, uh, most of the uh, alcohol. And that's one of the magic things of many a strong beers, that they cover the alcohol. Again, are you getting the smokiness out of it? Not as strongly as the first one, I agree with that. But definitely it's in there. In fact, if anything, I'm getting more of a roast malt character out of it. But a woodiness nonetheless. Nice little wood smoke kind of a thing to it. So this is what we have it is. And it's, one of the things that surprises me is how rich it is, yet how light it is. Always surprises me how light Scottish Hales actually are. And there we are, we're at the end of our flight. We're at the end of our class. And I'm even 10 minutes early. Should we clap? No. Okay.